0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Has the Liberal Order been taken for granted? The post-war consensus and the impact of the Cold War may have helped establish a way of doing politics that, in fact, was on less secure foundations than it seemed. Uh, That's the view of Professor James E. Cronin of Boston College, who's written Fragile Victory, the making and unmaking of the Liberal Order. So welcome to you. Thank you. And let's just start with what you mean by liberal order. What what, what does that phrase mean to you and for, your, for the purposes of your book?
0: Well, there's a sort of minimal definition of a liberal order, which people uh, sometimes uh, talk about. And when they do that, they talk about it as a rules-based international order. Now, I want to go further because the liberal order which emerged in the 1940s, um, was meant to be a rules-based international order. It was also embodied in institutions like the United Nations, the uh, Bretton Woods Agreements, the institutions that came from Bretton Woods. And that liberal order, as it emerged, had two or three other uh, components. It was liberal in the sense that it was generally in favor of more open trade, and a resumption of world trade. It wasn't completely open in that countries that were committed to protection only gradually had to approach the position of freer trade and currency exchange. But the tendency and the aims of the order were to open up the world economy. And the second issue, of course, is that To defend this liberal order, one needed various institutions, some of which it turned out were alliances and uh, military force, which may or may not be by definition liberal because they're, you know, (laughs) they're means of compulsion, but the liberal order that emerged in the 1940s did clearly have a security component. And the third characteristic that I think is important to recognize from the beginning is that the liberal order of the 40s was meant to be democratic. It was meant to foster liberal democracy. Now, not every country that took part in it was a liberal democracy. There were many compromises, and the liberal democracies that existed in the world in the 1940s were not fully liberal or fully democratic. Uh, The most important contradiction or qualification about the, you know, Lack of democracy within what we talk about as the democratic world or the West was, of course, empire, because components of that world, that West, um, included Britain and France and Belgium and the Netherlands, all of which in 1945 still had colonies. But that's a major, you know, contradiction. The result of that contradiction in a way, or the playing out of that contradiction, was that eventually uh, decolonization happened pretty much everywhere. It took time, sometimes took blood and sweat and repression, but the world did move toward decolonization. The other major issue in terms of democracy was that in at least one major country, United States, which was foundational to the liberal order, there was the problem of race and Jim Crow, and you know the exclusion of African Americans from full participation in the liberal democracy that was the United States was a, a stain on it, a contradiction. But once again, it was a it was something that was destined to change, change with struggle, change partial and slowly and with reversals, but. Implicit, I would suggest, in the creation of liberal order in the 1940s, and implicit too, or maybe explicit in the Cold War rivalry, was a focus on race and racism in the United States that ultimately meant that the United States became more democratic and more equal and more just on matters of race. Over time, it's not perfect by any means. Uh, there are racial uh, inequities and injustices that persist, but the trend was toward greater racial justice. And all of these things, these trends and tendencies, and these features, were part of the liberal order that I wrote about in this book, as it was established in the
1: nineteen forties. So, in sort of giving a the definition there, you give a lot of the limitations to it as well. I mean, and to put it. One way of looking at it, I guess, is that this only happened in the West, and you know, with even qualifications there, it wasn't in China, it wasn't in Russia, and it wasn't in uh, the colonies, and possibly more recently, it wasn't in the places that America conquered. You know, so there are limits even up till today. Absolutely right. So it, I guess that throws into question how useful a concept it is. So when did you worry that there were so many qualifications? And limitations to the liberal order, that it was less significant than you first hoped? I wouldn't
0: say that it was ever less significant. I think it was the organizing principle for much of the world during the entire Cold War period. And when the Cold War ended, it became the sort of dominant paradigm for political and economic development in countries that had been either uh, in the third world and trapped. Because of Cold War alliances or in the countries that were actually you know uh, run by communists in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, so I never had much doubt that it was very significant as a phenomenon as a and, and as a as a way of understanding the world and I think I, I I thought that all the time while writing the book and researching it and But at the same time, as you may have noticed in the introduction to the book, uh, I do lay out these contradictions because, you know, they're serious and critiques of liberal order as it existed or as it pretended to be, as it hoped to be, were worth considering. As it happened, though, just as the book was written, edited, ready to go to press, Russia invaded Ukraine. And That led me and my editor to decide that something had to be added about Russia and Ukraine. And it's now at the beginning of the book as a note to readers, that 10-page little essay. But if you think about that phenomenon, that recent event, which is still playing out, it provides a pretty good sense of what's important about liberal order. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine is pretty much unprecedented, at least in terms of Europe and in terms of, you know, the relations between the United States and the Soviet Union, then Russia. Something like that that has not happened. And I think if you need a demonstration of illiberalism or the violation of the spirit of a rules-based order, nothing could be clearer than the invasion of Ukraine. So... In that sense, my, my understanding of the importance of liberal order and of the difference between a liberal order and a, something that isn't liberal and isn't rules-based has been reinforced by the invasion of Ukraine and by thinking about it, reading about it, and writing about it. So I don't think it's, I don't think it was overemphasized. Um, but you're quite right. It did require qualification.
1: As well as the invasion of Ukraine, you, you must obviously have been grappling with Modi and Erdogan and, you know, Orbán in Hungary and uh, Trump and Brexit and all the rest of it. So so there's been a lot of going on, but we'll, we'll get on to all that later. So just, just now, why why not just take us through how this liberal order began? I mean, do you see it, as as a reaction to the Second World War or do you go before that?
0: I do both. I start with the illiberal regimes and rival orders of the 1930s because, you know, in some ways it's the uh, existence of those illiberal regimes and the Global or regional orders that they tried to create and impose that led to the Second World War. And so looking at the illegal regimes of the 1930s and the second world war together uh, constitute i think the founding moment and inspiration for the creation of a liberal order i have one chapter in the book which talks about a a world of illiberal orders in the 1930s and that's followed by section on the the second world war which talks about defining the enemy one of the features that I think is critical about the, the, the world order and the institutions that make it up in the 1940s is that they're so very much derived, closely derived, uh, to counter what was understood to be the nature of the right-wing regimes of Germany, Japan, and Italy, and of their practices and their ideologies so that A whole lot of what was to be the positive content of a liberal world order was shaped by an understanding of what these illiberal uh, aspirants to world domination had been about. And, of course, what they did during the war their behavior, the atrocities, the Holocaust. All those things reinforced the emerging critique of right-wing authoritarianism, of fascism, of Nazism, uh, and of Japanese militarism.
1: And I presume that the United Nations and its creation was, was part of your story of what happened in reaction to all of that?
0: Oh, yes, very much. The history of the United Nations is, of course, very tricky because for so long, the Cold War rendered it pretty ineffective in lots and lots of ways. And really, the growing split now between Western countries like uh, the United States, Britain and, and France, and uh, China and Russia, on the other hand, not necessarily an alliance, but on the Security Council, has rendered the uh, United Nations pretty Irrelevant to recent events, but in the 1940s, the United Nations was seen as critical, and it was seen as the organization that would, you know, represent the whole world and police the world and keep it keep the peace. So yes, it was very very critical. It was critical to Roosevelt's vision, FDR's vision of uh, the post-war world. It was critical, I think, to uh, visions of in, in Britain and France. And it was accepted, not enthusiastically, but accepted by the Soviet Union.
1: Now then, there, there were a couple of things that happened after the, the Second World War, in the decades after the Second World War, which presumably helped the liberal order. One was you know economic growth and prosperity, and the other, ironically, maybe the Cold War. So t- take us through the economic growth. I mean, yeah, would it have been possible to have these uh, developments that you describe in the liberal order without significant increases in, in, in wealth?
0: Well, I think economic growth was central to creating stable political regimes in what we refer to as the West, or the West in Japan, in the liberal world order, in the liberal part of the cold war order. So yes, growth was critical and it was fantastic. It was a rate of growth, sustained growth that hadn't been seen in a very very long time. Even in the heyday of industrialization, growth had been, you know, concentrated in certain industries and places, but the sort of growth that occurred in what the French call les trente glorieuses, the 30 glorious years after 1945, that growth was very widespread. It happened, you know, not just in the United States and Britain, but it also happened in countries like France and Italy, both of which were thought to have had economic miracles. I think the term the Germans used was the the Wirtschaftswunder. And of course, Japan grew even, even, even stronger. So I spent quite a bit of time in the book trying to discuss what the components were of that growth, what the preconditions were for growth. And I don't know if we have time to rehearse all of that, but one factor was the memory of the 1930s, of the Depression. And the way memory came down to people in the 40s and 50s was that two things hurt growth. The the first was a kind of unregulated capitalism, that there just there wasn't the welfare state, there weren't constraints on capital, and that meant that and there weren't strong labor unions in most places. So there was a definite decision to kind of move away from what people referred to as a laissez-faire capitalism toward a social democratic model or a Keynesian model or a model of capitalism with a serious welfare state. So those were, that was one understanding that came from depression and war and helped to guide policy after the war. And a second, of course, was that when the Depression occurred in 1929 and countries began to cope with it, two things happened. One, in countries like Germany, they opted for austerity. So that was another argument against austerity in favor of government spending and government involvement in the economy. The other thing that governments did most prominently I think is that they all went protectionist. The United States started it with the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930, but the um major factor, I think, the major event, was when uh, Britain adopted uh, imperial preferences through the Ottawa Accords, the leading country pushing for free trade globally, and historically, had shifted. So I think the economists and the policymakers who helped to design a growth strategy for the 1950s and 60s very much had in mind avoiding what were seen as the mistakes of the 1930s. And these were unregulated capitalism, austerity in response to depression, and protectionism.
1: But what about the post-war period? I mean, surely the development of the European Union and you know, the developments in the US in terms of NAFTA and so on suggest that protectionism did become an important part of the liberal order, albeit maybe a part that limited it geographically.
0: In terms of protectionism, the main thrust of liberal order was to minimize it. The Bretton Woods institutions and policies followed by the International Monetary Fund aimed to open up the world economy. But countries that were central, whether it was Britain or France, had inherited some protectionist policies from the interwar period and the war so the institutions, the economic institutions that govern the world economy, they were consistently trying to break down protection, increase the exchange of currencies, and make the world economy more open. But it took a while to get there. A crucial moment was you know, currency convertibility that uh, Britain was forced to accept in 1958 which they had resisted of course in 1947. So gradually the aim of the liberal order in the first quarter century after the war was to open things up. But, you know, opening things up too fast exposed domestic industry and workers and others and farmers also to competition that needed to be controlled. I think that's the context in which to also view the European Union. On the one hand, it was sort of considered, even criticized by some people in Britain as a capitalist club. It was designed to create a big open market, but of course, around that open market were protections from against goods competitors from outside. So. The first uh, purpose was to create a bigger internal market in Europe. And that you could consider a kind of liberalizing opening uh, process, set of goals. It operated though within constraints, you're quite right. Whether those constraints limited the actual scope of liberal order, I'm not quite sure because the European Union existed within a broader world economy, sort of Western dominated world economy that was gradually becoming more open.
1: True, true. But now, I mean, this is queer. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. I, mean, I was wondering whether you think now, I mean, if you think of Brexit and Trump and the role Europe is playing in the defense of liberal values, you know, it's almost as if that early emphasis on free trade has has um, switched to an emphasis on you know, the protectionism of the European Union. Uh, and in both cases, that, that it, was, it was associated with the liberal order. mean, it suggests that the trade issue isn't that important.
0: Well, <laughs> if you look at, orga- at, at the issues like uh, the Uruguay Round and trade and the creation of the World Trade Organization, the United States and Europe bargained very, very hard about those deals. But they came about... They compromised, they agreed. And the outcome was basically a a more liberal, open, competitive world. So I think you're quite right in suggesting that, you know, uh, the absence of protection or the existence of free trade are are not the sole determinants or the key uh, measures of whether you've got a liberal world order, but they uh, were part of the broader vision And they, and a a more open world economy was assumed to be from the beginning, from the beginning of efforts to create a liberal world order, was seen to be something that favored peace. Now we know that, you know, (laughs) countries that trade with each other don't always uh, stay at peace and that the equation of uh, economic openness and peaceful intentions and practices don't always hold. But it was clearly understood that part of the reasons countries went to war in the 1930s was as part of quasi-empires, protectionist groupings in which countries wanted to preserve their own economies or grow their economies by dominating their respective regions. And that was something that the liberal order was meant to, if not wipe out originally, to curtail, to discourage.
1: When you look at the development of Western Europe and the United States after the war, how important was it that they had the Soviet bloc, to compare themselves against, to struggle against, to, you know, develop different ideas in relation to?
0: I think it was critical. That's why, I don't know if you noticed it, but when I was at the beginning of the book, qualifying the liberal order in the sense of saying it wasn't always so liberal, and mentioning that one of the things that made it less of a liberal world order was the fact that it didn't cover the world. Big parts of the world were, were not liberal or not democratic. But I, I say there that confining liberal order to the West and its Asian allies, and Antipodean allies, by confining it, it made it possible for it to work, to take root, to take hold, to develop, you know, the legal framework, the institutional framework that, that made it work. And that by being confined and not being something global at first, may have made it more functional.
1: Let's now work out why this era came to an end, or, or is ending, okay. let's say. So or, I mean, well, well, first of all, do you go that far? Do you think the liberal order, I mean, you say it's fragile in your title, do you think it's actually, you know, fallen to bits? <laughs>
0: I think it's uh, very much under attack. It's certainly challenged by recent developments. I wouldn't quite say it's over, partly because you know there's there's a, a, a huge framework of international law that exists and in, inst- international institutions covering everything from you know health to energy. So the world is very integrated still and. And the the complex of institutions that engulf all countries in the world are are real. At the same time, the the, the willingness to abide by a rules based order and to you know not invade your neighbor that's very much under challenge. And that builds on a tradition or a, a move toward what some would call, or it's reasonable to call, multipolarity, which has been more and more evident since about 2000. So I I wouldn't quite say its era is done, but it's certainly qualified as much as at any time and under challenge, both externally and internally.
1: And one thing we can say for sure is that the, the end of history, you know, the end of the Cold War, when people thought that the liberal order would uh, dominate the world, I mean, that, that just hasn't happened. I mean, you can, you can say that Western Europe and the States are holding on, but you know, that expansion never took place.
0: No, I think that's right. Yes, the, certainly the grand hopes of the, of the 1990s have not been realized. There's, there's some debate among scholars about how much democratic backsliding there has been. So it, it seems that there's more backsliding. There are some measures that suggest that's limited. But in general, it's certainly not the optimistic, almost utopian vision that many people had in the 1990s.
1: As liberal order supporters, what, what went wrong? I think you have to start
0: back in the 1970s in terms of what went wrong. I think the first and key moment of weakening of liberal order came with the triumph of neoliberalism in the 1980s, prompted by the economic slowdown and inflationary crisis of the 1970s. You and I have talked minutes ago about the importance of prosperity in making liberal order work, getting it to sustain itself, uh, getting it to embed itself and in, in allowing democracy to embed itself in a variety of countries in the 25 or so years after the Second World War. Well, a key part of that was, was an economic strategy that was that encouraged the welfare state, that had government involved. And that was part of an environment, economic context, which was very, very different than what existed in the period before the Second World War. I don't know if you know this book by the French economist Piketty about capital in the 21st century. There's debate about the book. It's a brilliant book, but the key is he's put together really serious data on the distribution of wealth over time. And what he shows very, very clearly is that the period between about 1945 and 1980 was the time in terms of the capitalist states, capitalist economies, when inequality was the, was, was was less at a time when incomes and wealth were compressed around the mean, uh, where disparities of wealth weren't so great. And he's interested mainly in inequality. But I would take that finding and say that it's also critical in terms of economic growth, in that the economy post-war had stronger uni- unions, stronger welfare provisions, greater state involvement to provide compensation for inequalities and state involvement in providing things like roads, health care and so on. And that all that meant all those things also helped economic growth because there was a, a more buoyant market for consumer goods. So some economists and political economists talk about the post-war economy and use the term Fordism to describe it. And the idea behind that is that there's a kind of circular loop in that you have investment in assembly lines and mass production which can produce goods at a cheaper rate at a cheaper price. And at the same time, you have a market in which more people can partake of those goods. And that market, the level of demand, uh, the sort of structure of demand has been shaped by this compression of income so that more ordinary people can participate in this market. And so there's a series of very favorable feedback loops at work in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s. And that helped to the economies to grow. Now, the turn to neoliberalism in the 1980s, pioneered, as we know, by Thatcher and Reagan and emulated to varying degrees elsewhere, that set in a different dynamic. It involved, you know, sharp cuts in rates of taxation for the well-to-do. It involved cutting back, if possible, on government social expenditures. Uh, And it involved, whether it was central or accidental, certainly involved a weakening of trade unions. All of these things together combined to push rates of inequality up from the 1980s until recently, until today. There's, you know, little debates about different countries at different times and different moments, but the broad trend in the West has been an increase in economic inequality and whether it's cause or effect in this neoliberal era since 1980, growth has not been as robust as it was in the three decades after the war. So what that has meant is that The sense among ordinary people in whether it's uh, Britain, the United States, France, uh, Italy, people don't feel as well off. They have more grievances. They have less of a sense of well-being. And that carried over to the 1990s when with the end of the Cold War, there was an effort, some more or less spontaneous, but also, you know, Conscious to spread capitalism, a liberal economic order, to areas that had not previously experienced it. And the problem with that version of liberal economic order that was spread in the 1990s is that the guiding forces, the guiding ideas, really, between those people who were in charge of the world economy, um, the guiding ideas were neoliberal. So the kinds of capitalism that came to root in newly capitalized, you know, new emerging economies was not the embedded liberalism and constrained capitalism of the 1950s and 60s, but a more unrestrained and ungenerous capitalism of the neoliberal era. So that has consequences both for the Areas that are just beginning to transition to market economies, but it also has implications for the, you know, the for political stability at home, for the attachment of workers to unions and parties of the center left. It also... You know, allows more people to to basically lose out or get left behind in the in 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 economic terms as g- globalization spreads further as Chinese goods enter the market and manufacturing gets shrunk in the developed countries all these things meant that uh, the liberal order in its turn to neoliberalism had less to offer. To ordinary folks. That was an internal weakness in the liberal order that was there, you know, increasingly from the 80s, but particularly uh, visible with the massive spread of globalization in the 90s and 2000s, and is now one of the things that helps to fuel, you know, right wing populism, whether that's in Europe or America. I'm going
1: to push back on that because it seems to me from if you try to split out globalization and inequality and lack of growth then you know if you go to places like Scandinavia who have now got populist governments or yeah populist parties doing well they they didn't have the harsh neoliberalism and uh, really rapidly increasing inequality as far as I know as let's say the UK and the US. So it would maybe be the case that the europe and the west you know lack of economic prosperity in relation to the, to to asia and it's and it's you know lack of economic growth for globalization reasons would be more important than the neoliberalism uh, you describe would, would that be fair
0: well i don't think they can completely be distinguished obviously the proximate cause of the turn to the right in places like um, sweden is immigration of you know non white people now that you could say, as part of globalization, which it is, increased rates of, of, of um, migration. But I think it's true that not every country, and this includes Scandinavia, but other parts of Europe, not every country has experienced the same level or the same, the same intense embrace of neoliberalism. But it's neoliberalism that has been embraced by the world economy in general, that is the leading powers, the leading economic powers, Britain, the United States, Germany, France, even to some extent Japan, that has sort of defined the character of growth in the, since the 1980s and 90s. And that growth has been weaker. And I think the the, the weakening of that growth is partly, as you suggest, due to the rise of other growth centers, which, you know, (laughs) is part of a consequence of the triumph of liberalism in expanding the world economy and opening it up. But it also means that the kind of policies that might sustain internal demand and uh, the growth of better jobs in places like the United States and Britain, those things have been prevented by neoliberal beliefs,
1: I, I guess what I'm asking, in a way, is: Can you can you separate low growth rates and inequality? And and I mean, obviously, I'm not not arguing they're not connected. But can you say which one is the more important in this story you're telling of the fragility of the liberal order? Because it's quite tempting to say it's inequality, and we can all understand why that might have the impact at, you know, of creating populist parties. But I just wonder whether actually the more important thing is this general lack of growth and, and lack of income. incomes going up.
0: Well, I, <laughs> uh, I think, as you imply, they're quite connected. I think that greater income equality helped to sustain growth in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And Lack of that means that uh, that is more recent situation where there's more inequality means that there's less, you know, demand or capacity to consume on the part of domestic populations in Britain, the United States, other parts of Europe. So I think that inequality certainly, you know, reinforces tendencies toward slower growth. The lack of government investment in lots of things also discourages investment in other things. But it's also the case that, you know, if the economy is growing steadily and there's some widening of inequality, it's perhaps a bit more sustainable, that inequality. So I sort of see the two, slowing growth and increasing inequality, as working very much together and reinforcing one another.
1: All right, then let me throw another p- potential factor into, into the mix, which would be, you know, a sense of um, resentment in l- countries like uh, Russia that the West doesn't take them seriously. That sort of inferiority complex that the Russians have. Same sort of thing in Turkey, where there's great resentment about you know Western attitudes to Turkey and and treating it as an Asian rather than a European power. Uh, Orbán, uh, you know, complaining that the European Union won't reflect the Christian values of Hungary and take his country seriously. Is there, is there something else going on in the rejection of the liberal order in some of these non-Western, you know, strictly Western countries, uh, which is slightly different and more cultural than the economics you've been talking about?
0: Sure. What I'm talking about in terms of the triumph of neoliberalism is is partly the reason for a reason, not the only one, a reason for weakening attachment to liberal order in Western countries. Secondarily, that neoliberal uh, vision that guided efforts to create democracies and transition from state-controlled econ- economies to market economies, I mean, makes that those transitions harder and weaker. But I also think it's quite clear that countries like Russia and Turkey and uh, Hungary, that they, uh, you know, they, they do feel culturally alien or somewhat alien to the secular values or seemingly secular values, uh, Western countries. But it, it's not clear just how how these things come about. I mean, in Russia, for example, there was quite a lot of interest in developing Western-style economies, Western-style political systems. Gorbachev talked about returning to the European home uh, as, a, as a goal for Russia. And and Putin, when he first took power, uh, he made a number of gestures that indicated an effort to be part of Europe, to be cooperative, to do some of the things that reformers were asking, at least in terms of the, the, the economy and so on, and the legal framework of the economy. But then he, 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 he obviously shifted.
1: Had the West reached out more to Putin at that time, had the West, you know, given by now India a place on the security council, had, had the West taken a different approach to these uh, uh, countries that may have gone in a more liberal direction, you know, it may have been more productive. And, and, and the, its Western arrogance is to some extent responsible for its own decline.
0: I think that's possibly true. There's certainly been plenty of arrogance on the part of the West and Western countries. I think it's perhaps a little overly optimistic to think that countries that, let's say, have a seat on the UN Security Council, like France and Britain, will you know, give it up and give one to uh, India, I mean, it would be a wonderful gesture. They will one day. You know, hard to believe, <laughs> have, that it'll happen. They'll have to sometime. But you know, I think arrogance is 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 partly in in the mind of the people who take offense. I mean, there were certainly Americans who thought they knew what sh- what should be done in Russia and Eastern Europe. These these famous cases of advisors, American advisors. You know, people like Jeffrey Sachs and others who uh, sought to impose certain kinds of transitions and certain kinds of economic policies. But it's also possible to to exaggerate that. I mean, one of the issues that people have debated in discussing the war in Ukraine is the Russian claim that NATO expansion uh, threatens it and is the reason behind wanting to keep Ukraine within its orbit, the Russian orbit, and hence one reason for the invasion. And some some Western scholars have um, partially agreed with that. Others have not. But for this book and for other things I've written, I've reviewed U.S. policy toward NATO and NATO expansion. And all throughout the process, the United States and the West more generally, have sought to work very closely with Russia to not upset it, to give it a place at the table. Uh, There was something in 1997 called the Russia-NATO Founding Act to sort of solidify relationships even as NATO expanded. And there's also the fact that the main cause of NATO expansion is not a desire, has not been a desire on the part of the West to challenge the Soviet Union. It's been the desire of countries like Poland, Hungary, other former Soviet satellites to get protection from Russia, fearing that Russia would you know, undergo a, a backlash and become a threat. So if you read, you know, the efforts of of, of the Clinton administration to balance these, these things, they were, worked very hard on balancing it and were very cautious about expanding NATO and didn't, in fact, let countries into NATO right away. So it's easy enough for, Leaders in Russia, or Putin, to claim threats and to claim, you know, that they were disrespected, as a tool to justify what they do, but it doesn't tell you why they're doing what they're doing. It doesn't actually explain it. It's more of a a rhetoric, I think.
1: Why is it in this decline of the liberal order that the the right is 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 striding forward and the left is in retreat? Why is the collapse of the center and and the consensus helped the right?
0: The right is, (laughs) I think, constitutionally, as a matter of history, identity, uh, more capable, uh, more more, more prone to to use arguments that are nationalist, illiberal. That's, I mean, we we saw right-wing politics between the wars, move very, very far to the right. I think one question or an interesting question is what has allowed or encouraged right-wing parties and movements to move as far right as they have in recent decades, I guess. And I would mention first the end of the Cold War. The Cold War has many dimensions had many consequences, but one of the consequences of the Cold War was that it tied the tied right-wing parties to the political center. It was part of fighting the Cold War that America and Britain had to appear liberal, democratic, anti-racist, pro-worker, and having to appear that way meant that in fact they became more so. Uh, but in particular, right-wing. Types that were more nationalist, uh, maybe in in the case of Britain, more prone to defend empire, longer. But these tendencies, these right-wing tendencies, were sort of not allowed to develop because of the need to fight the Cold War and to maintain an image of a progressive democratic country and model so long as the Cold War existed. And... Almost as soon as the Cold War ended, you saw conservative parties in most countries moving further to the right. They weren't constrained. And I think that's that's pretty critical. The other factor, which I mention in the book, is that I, I, I talked a bit about the contribution of neoliberalism to breaking up liberal order. One way in which liberalism weakens liberal order is that neoliberalism, is not fundamentally a very popular stance politically for parties of the right. In the 1980s, Thatcher and Reagan could do very well saying we've got policies that are going to get the government off your back and we're going to get inflation tamed and maybe, you know, weaken the unions. And those things, in the context of the memory of the 1970s, were relatively popular. But what happens when inflation is tamed? What happens when the welfare state, you know, Doesn't grow so fast. What happens when unions are, in fact, much, much weaker? It means that the pitch, the argument for neoliberalism becomes less compelling. Parties like the Tories and Republicans in the US have less and less to offer to voters. And because, you know, austerity doesn't sell very well and cutting Social Security in America doesn't sell. So they have a greater tendency, therefore, conservative parties to drift further to the right and to encourage uh, politics based on fighting the culture wars. I think the revert to the culture wars is a sign that the economic program offered by right wing parties is less and less attractive. And so instead, they rely on these, you know, I would say more primitive, more basic, more illiberal culture war stands, which are, you know, just issues around which they can stoke outrage and create fear. And that gives them political support when you know, their economic program generates less support.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I was, I was going to mention one other factor which maybe we should think about, which was, you know, technology and social media and all that. And that, uh, you know, to what extent that has undermined the liberal order. And I guess, you know, following on from what you've just said there, you could argue that, you know, that those new technological media platforms have amplified the culture wars and, and maybe benefited the populists as well. I'm sure you
0: and I both remember that, Various people thought that the coming of new social media and Internet would allow more democracy and more grassroots efforts to to build social movements. But in fact, it seems pretty clear that the new social media and, and talk radio and cable TV, that those kinds of media have been much more easily and effectively adopted by the right. And, well
1: uh, yes. it's been well it, it's been a fascinating conversation and thank you very much for guiding us through your interpretation of you know the last uh, 70 years or so of uh, of western and global history. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.